Well, the section begins off with Paul interrogating the Galatians, one question after another. I think there's six total. Um, and the questions have to be answered uh, if we are to comprehend this argument that Paul is making for the, the gospel. And by argument, we need not mean a dispute. Uh, we don't mean um, ungodly bantering. Uh, as, as an argument, he's making a logical case, a biblical case for the nature of the gospel. And, uh, and he's bringing these questions to them so that they will think both logically and biblically, something of which they have not been doing. Uh, each question um, is basically one thing versus another. Uh, verse two has works of the law versus the hearing of faith. Verse three has the spirit uh, versus the flesh, or as Chuck Smith would say, it's perspiration versus inspiration. Verse five has works of the law versus the hearing of faith. The questions are as follows. Who bewitched you? Verse one. How is it that you were saved? Verse two. How is it that you're actually being sanctified? Verse three. And how is it that you acquired the gifts of the spirit? Verse five. Let's return to verse one and we'll uh, look at this, this first question. Oh foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified? Portrayed is kind of the same idea as a billboard. Jesus, his crucifixion was as if it was placed on a billboard for all to see, for everyone to know. Interesting. But Paul says, oh foolish Galatians, now sparing people's feelings at this point is not Paul's concern, is it? I don't even know what would happen to me uh, if I opened a letter like that or a sermon. Probably wouldn't go well. But you know, he's not being insulting, but now really is the time for directness uh, because of the nature of the situation, the, the, the trouble that they're in. And so being foolish, uh, it did not mean that they were stupid. That's not what the word means. It means that they were not thinking as they should have been thinking concerning the truth of the gospel, okay? It was bad thinking. It wasn't biblical thinking. And the truth of the gospel is the very thing that's at stake. Uh, now this has already been mentioned a number of times up to this point, and uh, that is the, the issue, the danger. In chapter one, six, and seven, just as a reminder, Paul accused the Galatians of turning away from God who had called them into the grace of Christ and they were turning, he said, to a perverted or a false gospel. It's verses six and seven. Here he says they were not obeying the truth, that is, as it relates to the gospel, the, the, the gospel of Christ, his death and resurrection. Just as in chapter two, verse 14, Peter was not being straightforward about the truth of the gospel when he was influencing people to keep the law in order to be good Christians. It wasn't being straightforward. And you know, the keeping of the law was exactly what the Galatians were doing. That's why this letter's been written. They thought that by keeping the law that that would be the thing that made them good Christians. They confused that for how it is that a Christ follower should live. But Paul says that all of that, he says, is actually a departure from God. Chapter two, verse six. That is the, the, what it is, what it means to receive a false gospel to seven. 
It's not straightforward truth of the gospel, 2.14. It's just not obeying the truth at all. Chapter three, verse one, where we're at now. So to give your attention to the law is equivalent to taking your eyes off of Jesus. Giving your attention to the law is equivalent to taking your eyes off of Jesus. That's been well established thus far, I believe. Paul's question is, who was it that bewitched you? Who was it that got you thinking this way and doing these things? Now, we've already identified them. It was either uh, a Judaizer or it was a group of them. But it's the bewitching, I think, that should concern us. The bewitching. You know, if those who were discipled by Paul could be bewitched and led astray, uh, perhaps that could happen to us. Don't you think? I'm not afraid to say that Paul's teaching and discipleship is superior to my own and probably to yours, okay? Um, I can't claim that when I preach that it's theopanusto, that it's inspired of God, okay? I'm, I'm inspired by God as, as long as it conforms completely to the scriptures, okay? And I'm just not perfect like that when it comes to preaching. But if those discipled by Paul could be bewitched, if they could be foolish in their thinking, I think we need to worry about that as well, okay? The Galatians were bewitched, that is, they were spellbound. They were, they were put in awe. They were fascinated in all the wrong ways, and it was in their fascination that distracted them from seeing the trap that had been set before them by the Judaizers, okay? Distracted, fascinated. And so whoever this Judaizer was, he was no uh, slouch in his uh, powers of persuasion, he was able to twist and pervert the meaning of the gospel without the Galatians being alarmed by it. It's kind of the idea of sleight of hand, okay? Distract your eyes over here so that you don't see what this hand is doing. That's what he was doing, albeit with arguments and his eloquence perhaps, maybe his intellect it was distracting them, similar to the way that a juicy worm distracts the fish from seeing the hook. And then by his skill, perverting the gospel, they, they bit hook, line, and sinker. It was deception. It was probably well-stated arguments. It was just misleading from the implications of the true gospel. You know, slick preachers with persuasive arguments, sometimes not even persuasive arguments, it's just their eloquence, their charismatic thing, it's always been a danger to the church. You know, from the time of the apostles to the present day, people have tried to ensnare the believers. Sounds nefarious, doesn't it? It's because it is. It's because it's, it's satanic, okay? You know, nearly every New Testament book mentions a false teacher or false teaching. That was a problem in the first century, wasn't it? Almost every church got to hear it. Paul told the Ephesians that we should no longer be children, you know, tossed you know, to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. That does sound nefarious, doesn't it? Listen to that. Cunning, wait, trickery of men, cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. But let me read that all over again because I just distracted you from what the whole context was about. That we should no longer be children tossed to and fro, carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, but we should be speaking the truth in love so that we may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ. 
Ephesians 4, 14. There's always going to be a variety of false teachers and false doctrines, and that's why we must commit ourselves to the vigorous, or rigorous rather, study of God's word so that we have the ability that Paul is saying here, that we can speak truth to one another, and we can do it in love. And the more we collectively understand the truth, the less it'll be possible for us to be distracted by an error, by an error. You know, I like to uh, read um, articles from various kinds of people just so that I can kind of exercise my discernment. Because, you know, there are atheists and agnostics and heretics within the church, and they're very polished in the way that they speak, the arguments they make, and I like to read them just to exercise my senses in that regard, okay? And, and identify the error in the, the, the logic, the error in their uh, understanding of the scriptures. So that when I encounter it in the real world, I could go, there it is right there. They're a fraud, they're a false teacher. The doctrine that they're presenting is deceptive. It's misleading, it's dangerous, okay? Yeah, Paul charged Timothy to commit himself to the teaching of the word, the word of God, because the time would come when some in the church would no longer tolerate sound teaching. The, the, the word there for sound is a medical term. It means that which uh, brings wholeness. They won't tolerate sound teaching, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they'll heap up for themselves teachers and turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. That is, a, f- a fable is something that's just not true. It's false. That's 2 Timothy 4.3. So what's interesting, you know, false teachers in their false teaching, they abounded in the first century, but nothing compared to our present day. Nothing compared to the present day. It's everywhere. They're everywhere, okay? The author of Hebrews warns us of the same thing. He says, do not be carried about with various strange doctrines, for it is good that the heart be established by grace. Hebrews 13, nine. And that's the issue here in Galatia. The Galatians were getting their attention drawn away from the grace of God in the gospel and onto something that is really the antithesis of grace, this obeying the law and putting forth self-effort. You remember in Paul's closing statements in chapter two, which of course leads into this chapter, he said, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. This is all of the truth that the Galatians have been distracted from. Christ now lives in the believer, and he's there to empower us for righteous living. As Paul said, now that I'm saved by faith, I live by faith. Now that I'm saved by faith, I live by faith. That's the argument he's gonna make for them now. Verse two, he says, this only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? So Paul's question, how did you receive the spirit? I I think we need to answer another question first. What does it mean to receive the spirit? What does that mean? Well, by receiving the spirit, He's referring to the work of the Holy Spirit in salvation. He's talking about how it all began. How did your walk with Christ begin? And we know from the scriptures, the moment someone trusts in Jesus for salvation, 
The Holy Spirit is received and the miracle of salvation occurs. There can be no salvation, regeneration, without the indwelling of the Spirit. Until you receive him, you are not born again, you're not saved. We're saved as a result of his indwelling. So Paul's question is this, how was it that you received the Holy Spirit for salvation? How did that happen? Think back, he's saying, how did that occur? Did you receive the Holy Spirit for salvation because you kept the law? We know the answer to that, right? Of course not, of course not. If that was how someone got saved, no one in this room would be saved. And if obeying the law for salvation is required, uh, there's no one in this room that could be saved. It's not impossible. No man has kept the law but Jesus. And even if you started keeping the law perfectly from this day forward, it would be too late because you'd have to give an account for all of your past disobedience to the law for which the consequences is what? It's death, that's right. Future obedience does not forgive past rebellion. But thankfully, obedience to the law has nothing to do with receiving the Holy Spirit for salvation. So the Galatians had to admit that they did not receive the Spirit by their obedience to the law, but it was purely by the hearing of faith. Now the hearing of faith has to do with believing the message of the gospel. Faith comes by what? You guys know your Bible. Romans 10, 17, faith comes by hearing the gospel. The Galatians heard the gospel, they believed the gospel, they received the Holy Spirit, and they were saved. That's just so sweet and simple, isn't it? I believed and I was saved. The very instant they believed, they received the Holy Spirit. Had nothing to do with the law. Well, this begs the question, if it was by faith alone that they received the Spirit, if it all began with faith, verse three, are you so foolish? Having begun in the spirit, are you now being made perfect by the flesh? It's very logical, isn't it? How it started here, and it progresses this way, okay? Are you so foolish? Having begun in the spirit, are you now being made perfect by the flesh? Now the question, of course, brings us back to Paul's main point. You know, there really is no dispute over how someone is initially saved. We're saved by grace through faith. Paul's argument here is about how someone lives for God after salvation, after salvation. This passage is not talking about how we begin our life with Jesus, but how we live the rest of our life for Jesus. Continuing on, how do we continue on? You know, the beginning of the Christian life is an event. Salvation, it's, it's an event. But what follows for the rest of our life is called sanctification. Salvation is a one-time event. It happened in the past. It's It's all done, we're saved, but sanctification is an ongoing experience. It's a a spiritual process with the goal of moral perfection. Now, not in this life, okay? Not in this life, but that's the goal. Sanctification is the work of the Spirit in the believer's life, and his work, his objective, is to make us more like Jesus, who is perfect, okay? So is the process of sanctification a work of the spirit, as salvation was, or is it a work of the flesh? That's the question here. By the flesh, Paul is referring to their efforts to keep the law. Keeping the law is a work of the flesh. It's something you do, and something you'll either be rewarded for or condemned for, but either way, it's on you. If you have any success, you'll get the credit for it. And God loves to share his glory. (laughs) So the question is this, are you being sanctified 
by the Holy Spirit or are you being sanctified by your commitment and obedience to the law? He says, you began in the spirit whom you received by faith. Are you so foolish to think that you will be perfected or sanctified by your obedience to the law? Now, the concept of perfection has to do with completion. Uh, It's talking about a finished product. Uh, Maybe you you remember Paul told the, the Philippians, he says, I'm confident of this very thing that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ, Philippians 1, 6. The word complete in Philippians is the same Greek word that's here in Galatians for perfection. And they're both talking about the exact same thing. Now in the Philippians passage, question for you is, who is it that began the work and who is it that will complete the work? It's the Lord, is it not? It's the Lord, yeah. And in Galatians 3.3, it's the Lord. It's the Lord. And how much of it occurred by keeping the law? None of it. The Lord is both savior and he is sanctifier. 2 Corinthians 3.18, the spirit of God is conforming us to the image of Christ. It's by him, it's by him. Therefore, the Christian life begins when we receive the spirit by faith and the Christian life continues or is lived in the spirit as we walk by faith. That's Christianity in a nutshell, and that's pretty simple. The righteousness that cannot be achieved by keeping the law can only be experienced as we walk by the spirit who energizes obedience. Both salvation, sanctification, works of the spirit, salvation as we believe, sanctification as we trust, and the lordship of his lordship over us. Paul says that it's foolish to think that perfection The end goal of sanctification can be achieved by your obedience. It's not gonna happen. Didn't we learn that from Paul? You can have all kinds of outward obedience, can't you? Even to the point where you can say, according to the law is blameless, until the law, of course, viewed me within, and then it was bad, it was ugly. From beginning to end, our walk should be in faith, trusting in the divine person who has taken residence in us, okay? Verse four, Paul says, Have you suffered so many things in vain? If indeed it was in vain. You know, if the Galatians had completely turned their backs on the grace of God and then turned to the law, all of their suffering for them coming to the faith, he's saying that would all be for nothing. All for nothing. It was just a waste. But he says, if indeed it was in vain. I think, I don't think that Paul believes that they've completely turned yet. Okay, he's leaving the door open. I refuse to believe that about you guys. Verse five, another question. He says, therefore, he who supplies the spirit to you and works miracles among you, does he do it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? We all know the answer, right? Yeah, it was all by faith. Now, miracles and the supply of the spirit, um, I, I think I know what he's talking about, okay? I think, I think that he's talking about miracles in general and then the miraculous gifts of the Holy Spirit among them, okay? That's what I think he's talking about. So Paul may be asking, did God perform miracles among you because you obeyed the law or because you believed the message that you heard? Now, even if we don't know exactly what he means by the miracle thing in the Spirit, we still know the answer to the question because it's consistent with all of the others. Did you exercise the gifts of the Spirit because you were a good Jewish boy keeping the law or because of of your faith in the gospel? It's all faith, okay? The answer's obvious. 
Yeah. I think what is interesting is, you know, also logically, historically, God was doing all of those things in the midst of the Galatians before they were enticed by the Judaizers to obey the law. So the law can't be a part of any of the equation because none of that was going on until the Judaizers arrived. They were doing just fine without the law until it was imposed on them, okay? Everything is a product of faith, not the obedience to the law. And to support this historically, Paul provides an example in verse six from Genesis 15, five, saying, just as, or in like manner, Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. So Abraham was justified purely by faith. Now the timing of Abraham's justification I think is the most interesting thing. You see in Genesis 15, six, where Paul is quoting, where Abraham is declared righteous by faith, you know, it preceded the giving of the law by a lot. You know, the 10 commandments weren't given for another 430 years. Abraham was declared righteous in the complete absence of law, okay? So he didn't even have the law in order to be justified by the law. There's just no law. So how did Abraham know how to live for the Lord if there was no law? There's an interesting passage in Genesis in this regard. The Lord said of Abraham, I have known him in order that he may command his children and his household after him that they keep the way of the Lord to do righteousness and justice. Genesis 18 verse 19. Before the giving of the law, Abraham was able to instruct his children in the ways of the Lord and do what is right and just. Very interesting, isn't it? We're gonna entertain those things a lot later. But I have a hunch that if Abraham could follow the ways of the Lord and do what was just and right without the law, so can we, especially having the Spirit dwelling inside of us. Verse seven, he says, therefore know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. Now that statement seems to come kind of out of left field, I think. I mean, how did Abraham get in this conversation anyway? Okay, how did he get here? And what difference does it make whose child you are? Well, to the Jew, being a descendant of Abraham was everything, everything. I mean, it made you a member of the chosen race, God's covenant people. Uh, It made you a part of the people group to whom God gave the Old Testament scriptures. They were the recipient of the covenants, the promises. To them were the prophets, the land, and through whom would come the Messiah. There were many benefits and advantages to being a Jew, uh, all of which Paul itemizes in Romans 3, 1 and 2, and then Romans 10, 3 through 5. But while there are great advantages to being a Jew, no Jew is saved by virtue of their ethnicity. Jewishness saves no one, saves no one. Just because you're a physical descendant of Abraham. Yeah, they are only the children of Abraham by blood. Uh, They're not necessarily his children by virtue of believing, okay? I'm sorry, they're not necessarily his children in a figure of sense by virtue of believing as he did, okay? Now, I've heard Christians in ignorance say that Jews, uh, they're saved simply because they're Jewish. Okay, it's, it's crazy. You remember Peter, he was actually speaking to Jews and he said, there is no other name given under heaven by which we must be saved. 
Yeah, Acts 4.12. So by that statement, Peter condemns all unbelieving Jews. They're in the same category as a pagan, okay? There's zero, no salvation for anyone apart from Jesus. Now, Paul has probably mentioned Abraham because the Judaizers, most likely, were holding their physical relationship to Abraham over them. We're superior. We're superior to you. And, and therefore, you should probably listen to us. I mean, we're his children by virtue of pedigree. You guys are Gentiles. You guys are Gentiles. You have no physical relation to Abraham, who is the father of the chosen people, the chosen. But there is a way for you to be related to Abraham in a sense so that you can enjoy at least some of those benefits. You'll have to be circumcised and obey the law of Moses. That should have been the first indication. The mention of circumcision as an adult, discussion is over, okay? All of my discernment flags are just the whistles and the alarms are going off. In other words, they're saying you need to become as much like a Jew as possible for you to really get into this whole thing. But hold on, Abraham didn't have the law, so he could not have been a law keeper. And therefore, it could not have been by his obedience to the law that Abraham was justified. So it would be impossible for you to follow in the steps of Abraham by keeping the law. Yeah. You know, they took advantage of the ignorance of the Galatians. Realize, they didn't have the scriptures, you guys. There was a partial copy perhaps, in the synagogue. But the Galatian Christians, they didn't have a copy of Genesis. That's not fair, is it? They couldn't argue with them from Genesis. It's not fair, okay? They were lying to them. The only way to follow in the steps of Abraham in order to become his child is to believe unto righteousness just as he did. That's the only way, and therefore only those who are of faith, Paul says, are sons of Abraham in a salvific sense. Don't be intimidated by those people, okay? Don't let them hold their pedigree over you. Only those who believe can be the spiritual descendants of Abraham because the only thing that Abraham did was believe. So Paul is basically saying, be assured of this fact. It's only those who are of faith that are the sons of Abraham. Pedigree is nothing. You know, John, in John the Baptist's way, he made this very clear in Matthew when speaking to the Pharisees and many of the Jews, he says, therefore bear fruits worthy of repentance and do not think to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones and even now the ax is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore every tree which does not bear good fruit, it's cut down and it's thrown into the fire. Matthew 3, eight through 10. That would have been a nice verse to throw at the Judaizers, huh? You have Abraham as your father. Who cares? I've got an ax. <laughs> Faith is everything. Verse eight, and the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, in you all the nations shall be blessed. They'll be blessed. The promise of good news was first spoken to Abraham in Genesis 12, three. It's repeated a number of times after this. Our English translation says that God preached the gospel to Abraham, which is true, but it wasn't the gospel in its fullest sense as we know it today. The word gospel simply means the, the, the announcement of good news. God gave Abraham good news. 
that salvation would not be confined to one people group. It would be spread to everyone. God would bless all nations of the earth as a result of God choosing Abraham. Okay. Was it special to be chosen by God? Yeah, but he chose God for the blessing of all, something the Judaizers missed in Genesis. The gospel, certainly not, Abraham didn't understand all that was implied in this gospel. He just knew that the earth was going to be blessed because of him, the people. Verse nine, so then those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. I love that. Those who are of faith are blessed with, we could say, Abraham who had faith. Those who are blessed are the ones that believe as Abraham believed. Okay, it's really the same in the original language. But the statement is held in opposition to what the Judaizers were saying. They were saying that only law keepers would be blessed with Abraham. Only law keepers will be benefited. But Abraham wasn't a law keeper. He was just a believer. Don't you love how simple that is? He was not a law keeper, he had no law to keep. He was just a believer. He was following the Lord by faith. You know, and Hebrews 11 says that he lived his life by faith. He obeyed by faith. So we are blessed with believing Abraham by believing like Abraham. All the benefits enjoyed by him were the result of his faith. So in like manner, any benefit that we enjoy is going to be a result of faith. As we started, I said law keeping will only draw your attention away from Jesus and onto you what you accomplish in your own strength, which is the opposite of faith. And by it, Paul is saying there is no blessing. There's actually a curse, which is everything that follows in the next section. Cursed is the man that does not continue in everything that's written in the law. We'll get into that in, I guess it's three weeks from now, okay? So please read ahead. Feel the weight of the curse. Until then, let's keep to the simplicity of walking by faith and enjoying the benefits of faith, amen? Go ahead and stand up and I'll pray with you. We have two and a half, one and a half chapters left of arguing and then I assure you we'll get into the practical application. Let's pray. Well, Lord Jesus, whether it's the 10 commandments, whether it's another set of rules, religious regulations, a checklist, things that we love to attach ourselves to. It's, it's a distraction. Lord, I pray that you would help us to understand by faith that when we walk in the spirit, we will generate more holiness that, than could ever be generated by walking according to the law. The Holy Spirit is holy, and if we're under his lordship, we're going to be holy. So Lord, remind us of the simplicity of the gospel, to believe, to simply trust, to rely upon you and to not get distracted, Lord. Lord, we thank you for your grace. Just help us to continue to be good students of grace, as Paul says in Titus 2, that we might shun evil and walk in truth, Lord, and then look forward with excitement to your coming. So, Lord, we love you. Lord, I thank you for my church family, and I pray that day by day they could just learn to walk accordingly and experience the blessing of it and give you glory for it. In Jesus' name, amen.